I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Cabin fever has started to set in as we spill over into the second half of the lockdown. Every day is Groundhog Day. You thought this would be the opportunity to write the great South African novel, but instead you spend hours reading COVID-19 worst-case scenarios, taking your temperature every seven minutes, and fixating on the rising number of worldwide infections. We're traveling into the heart of the lockdown to bring you I'm a Booker Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, a short and sweet distraction from the pandemic, because what you need to do right now is relax, stay at home, and avoid the coronavirus like the plague. Author's Lockdown, T-11. Brent Mearsman is a journalist and author whose books include Primary Coloured, Reports Before Daybreak, Five Letters at Noon, 80 Gays Around the World, Sunset Claws, and his latest, A Childhood Made Up, which was released at the stroke of the lockdown. It's a compelling memoir where Brent hurtles down memory lane to his childhood in Cape Town, growing up in a family where storms are constantly raging. His father, Willie, fled Belgium to escape parents from hell. Willie had a hair lip, an alcohol addiction, and battled with depression. Brent's mother, the captivating Shirley Mearsman, a.k.a. Shirley Morris, a.k.a. Sirom, a.k.a. Shirley, a.k.a. Shirley, leaps out of the pages. Shirley is an absent-minded artist who is contemptuous of South Africans who think Picasso is a type of cheese. She also suffers from schizophrenia. A Childhood Made Up is a poignant and powerful memoir, skillfully told with raw and gritty honesty. But Brent also has a light touch, and there are times where you will laugh out loud. It's a tale about pain and sorrow, but it's also a tale of recovery and redemption. Welcome to I'm a Booker Booker, Brent. Can you please read an extract from A child made, Childhood Made Up? Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Um, sure, I've uh, selected something just from the prelude. It's uh, from the second page. I remembered how, when I was a small child supposed to be asleep, my mother would slip into bed behind me and hold me. She would be trembling. She couldn't hide it, no matter how young I was. Go to sleep. Go to sleep, she'd say, as if that would save us. I remember her saying she saw a dazzling golden light like an aura shining around my head. I clearly recall seeing her in the dead of night, standing next to the refrigerator with a carving knife in her hand, ready to stab. She said she did not remember that. There were other things she would rather forget, but which I remembered. And then somehow, as I grew up, I forgot. I forgot almost all of it. Strange, isn't it, that one forgets one's childhood and yet it never leaves one. It was painful and funny when I started to remember again. My memory jogged by going to a psychotherapist for the first time as I approached the milestone age of 50. At first, there wasn't much order to my recollections. Fleeting images, I couldn't connect to episodes in my past. The glare of a fridge opened at night. Smells of tins filled with ash. The metallic taste of a small blue pill. I recalled the softness of my sky-blue blanket, the one I hid beneath as a child and found hard to leave behind as I grew up. 
What I had experienced as a child was coming back to me, unveiled memories that would stop me in mid-conversation or surprise me while I might be out walking in the midday sun. It was like falling asleep under a giant tree somewhere out in the felt and then waking up to find yourself overrun by biting ants. My body remembered what my mind had forgotten. Memories that made me burst out laughing and others that put me on the edge of tears. Because of these reactions, which were sudden and usually came two days after a session, the therapist began insisting on seeing me twice a week. Our process was classic psychoanalysis, on the couch with my back to her. I began to recall various traumatic incidents, seemingly unaware that they were traumatic. She would have to stop me. Wait, 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 please rewind. Did you just say it happened shortly after your father tried to commit suicide? Yes. I think we need to pause a bit and talk about that, don't you? She'd say, or words to that effect. But I couldn't remember what I felt at the time such things happened. There was only numbness, the numbness of turning events into matters of fact, an instinct for survival perhaps, but I became more preoccupied with trying to understand and empathize with my mother and later my father and still later others around me rather than to comprehend myself. I take a great interest in other people, yet at the same time I can be uncannily absent in their company. It is how I protected myself as a child, always placing a pane of glass between me and them, between Stoic Brent and my family. But it wasn't bulletproof, for I recall how, age 12, I started rehearsing for my own suicide. I was still unsure if I wanted to recollect such dark details. I wanted to cling to the fairy tale I'd been telling myself and others all these years about my childhood and my family. The story about how my mother was an angel and loved me unconditionally, about how my father was an abused child but broke the pattern and never raised a hand against his own children. It is the tale we tell ourselves about how fortunate we have been compared to so many others, about how our parents' failings helped us become the unique creatures we are. It is the uplifting story about how thankful we are for the hardships we have suffered, because these have given us our rare qualities. Should I not then have left memory alone and rather stayed content with the childhood I had made up? After all, what my therapist called my coping mechanisms were solidly in place. I can, with confidence, tick nearly every box on the standard list of the characteristics of a psychologically healthy person. There may have been a dark whirlpool at the center of my upbringing, but I'd learned how to paddle. But it was no use. Psychoanalysis had unblocked my memory. My made-up childhood was coming apart. What is repressed must also be heard. The full story was demanding to be told. I blotted out far too much for far too long. Oh, thanks, Brent. A Childhood Made Up is a very personal book. And I suppose that's the point of memoirs. You share intimate details about your life. How is it to be so open to make yourself so vulnerable? Well, something which I've um, just discovered is that there's this wonderfully intimate relationship that one has between oneself as a writer and the page you, 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 you're putting things down on. And obviously you have your readers in mind. And then there's this intimate relationship between the reader, usually silently and privately, sitting with your book and reading it. So it's, it was something I hadn't expected, was when one actually talks about these things in the book um, to somebody, you know, in an interview such as this, 
um, how how vulnerable that is and how exposing that is and how you end up talking about things that you would not normally talk about in public um, and certainly not broadcast um, because there is that intimacy within writing. The other side of that was I do think that it's, you know, what, what is our, our role as writers? What, what is our role in, in society? And one of the, the role is for us to express ourselves to articulate things that people haven't necessarily articulated for themselves, but they also feel it and everybody goes through these things, uh, but they might not want to necessarily uh, make it public or own up to it and, uh, own up to it publicly. So I think that's part of what we do as, as writers. I think that's our job. Was it a, you talk about, you know, going to psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. but was writing this cathartic? Yes, I, I certainly had uh, several cathartic experiences, sure. But I think most of the catharsis happened during the, the psychoanalysis, actually. And I think that that actually put me in a position. So I'd sort of done the therapy, had done all that. And then that put me in a position to to be able to write. So the writing was sort of post-therapy. Okay. Um, it did, however, it was very difficult, though, because you still, you still have to articulate these intensely personal emotions. And I waited a long time because I really, even though I'd written quite a lot of works, um, I always knew I wanted to tell the story, but I didn't think I was a good enough writer to do it. So I've, I've taken my time. And now that I've written, you know, I've probably got about a million words in print, actually. <laughs> um, I, uh, I thought, okay, I'm now in a position to tell the story. And I, the process was interesting because I didn't want to do it directly at first. So I, I wrote a novel. And the original book, this this book, was originally a novel with the character called Brent in it, and all in the third person. Um, and I was rather fond of that, and it was it was quite a funny little novel, um, and very tight. Um, and and I I still feel I, I would love to have that actually out there as well, um, but. I felt, well, other people felt that, no, it needed to be the personal narrative and don't hide it and, and, and express, you know, express. And I thought, I think express yourself as a memoir. And I think that that was probably the correct decision. Um, but then it did take a complete rewrite. And I don't think a single sentence was left standing uh, from the third person version to the first person. Your parents have both died. But what do you think would they have thought of the book? I, I don't know. It's quite difficult. Um, I would think maybe they'd be, uh, well, because of the nature of the people that they were, I think my mother would be utterly horrified um, <laughs> to have lived in a different time, you know, in a, a different age. She was from, the, you know, she was born in 1925 and there was a, there were all kinds of rules around what, what is said in public and what is not said in public, even though she broke all those rules at home and she had no boundaries really. Um, so I, on one level, I think she'd probably be, be quite horrified at it. But um, uh, on another level, I mean, I think they would be incredibly proud. My mom actually tried to write a novel and um, she threw it in the sea, the only known copy of it she flung into the ocean, something which I've attempted to do before myself. Yes, so I I think she would probably be very proud of the fact that I'm, you know, I am a writer now. I think she would, she would, she would like that idea very much. But, uh, you know, writers are hard, hard people to live with, I think. Um, And uh, best not get too close to them. (laughs) They write about you. You land up in their books. (laughs) One of the most emotional aspects of the memoir is your relationship with your brother, Paul Henri. The two of you went through this experience together, yet you haven't seen him since he was in his 20s, which would be about 30 Mm. years ago. What would he think of? Yes. 
Um, well, uh, interestingly enough, I happen to know um, ah. he contacted me. Um, I got an email from him um, about an, uh, literally about two hours ago wow. um, saying that he had found it and he had read it um, and thanking me and actually uh, full of praise um, and thanking me for articulating it and saying it's very brave and Yes, so he uh, he has now read it, um, and uh, yeah, so that so that's interesting. And, I, and part of me has always hoped that writing the book would move <clears throat> move that relationship into a new chapter. Um, and I think maybe maybe there is hope that that you know is what will happen. Um, for those who haven't read the book, I mean, he left South Africa in 1988, never to return. Um, and I think given our circumstances and all the rest, you know, I kind of think that he probably made the same, the same decision. Um, when me staying behind and looking after all of this was probably um, a, a very nice, a very good thing to do uh, uh, ethically and morally and otherwise, but um, probably maybe not altogether sane. Not everybody can, not, and it's not for everyone to have to take on I can understand him wanting to get out of that situation completely away from it. Um, because it's very, very painful. Mm. You write about your... And I, I, really didn't know, I really didn't know what to expect from him. Or I knew he'd eventually find it uh, because it's out on, on e-books. Um, but uh, I, uh, yes, I, was, I didn't know what to expect. And I'm, I'm very pleased that it has turned out the way it has. You write about your mother's collections and displays of nude paintings. What did you make of these growing up? Um, it was just art. You know, my mom explained uh, very simply. She said, "You know, this is this is art, and uh, the, the human body is beautiful." Um, and we had, you know, uh, Greek uh, the Larousse Encyclopedia with with all the Greek statues in it and Greek paintings and things. And then you know how everything was censored in those old apartheid days. So she saw it as sort of you know this gross ignorance um, of people. I mean, I don't know if you recall, but I, I recall quite. Uh, well, a very young, I think it was Civilization, the author Kenneth Clark series. And in fact, when they showed Michelangelo's David, you know, the the camera panned down, <laughs> um, and when it sort of got to the got to the center of his body, the, it blacked out, you know, on SABC, and then sort of the picture reappeared at his knees. And I remember my mom just saying, "Oh, what absolute dirty little minds they have! How ignorant!" And so we were brought up with that, that people who sniggered at, at nudity were, had, dirty, had dirty minds. Um, and if you didn't have that, you saw the, you saw the beauty. Um, and of course, she had been to life classes and things briefly, and she, although she wasn't ever trained and she never had a formal education for art. What has become of her artwork? Well, I, I staged a big exhibition because I was sitting with lots of paintings, hundreds, and it made no sense for them to be stacked up against walls um, uh, and not being seen and not being enjoyed. Um, and I also wanted to do this exhibition also for my father, um, that he could see that something had come out of all of that sacrifices that he had made during his life. Um, to keep this, to keep her art going, um, and so we had a big exhibition, and, and most of really good ones were sold. Um, and I'm glad people have them, um, and they're in their homes, and it's something which they appreciate and cherish. Um, and I know friends. Sometimes I'll visit a friend, and I'll see what, her painting on their wall. Um, a lot of them I don't know where they are, but I did photograph and I did keep a catalogue of everything that lost that went away from my possession. Um, and then I still have uh, lots of them, and I've got many, many on my walls. And in fact, my my dining room is plastered with them, almost like you know, like tiles. Um, so the whole upper area is just her paintings. And people come in and stare and 
in wonder at it. So, so they're, they're around, yeah. What is your strategy for surviving this lockdown? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm just working. Um, I, I, I don't find it, actually, I don't find it very difficult. Um, but, you know, with my mom's condition, um, we were social distancing a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> my mom would sometimes not leave the, uh, leave the flat. She had, to be, she had to be persuaded to go out into, into, into the public and into life. Um, and she'd maybe do a trip up. We'd do a trip up to the shops once a week. Um, other than that, she went to the, the dirt bins, the post box, um, and that that was it. Um, so no, so we did the lockdown. I had a lockdown childhood, um, so I'm well prepared, well prepared for this uh, eventuality. So psychologically, I don't find it a strain at all. Um, what I do find a strain though is, is is the frame in which we are. So I'm I'm aware of of, of what's happening around me, and and I'm I'm co-editor of Ground Up News, so the news is coming in all the time, and I'm connected to what's happening. Um, and that's that's deeply distressing, um, and and obviously, so the frame is very difficult. But my own personal circumstances are—it's quite easy for me uh, to weather this lockdown. And I've got more than twenty-one bottles of wine, and <laughs> cellars there, so we find. <laughs> if you could take only one book and only one CD into the lockdown with you, what would you take? Oh, that's such an impossible question. <laughs> um, if I had to, what would I do? Okay, I would probably be rather conventional about it, actually. Okay, CD, I would take, it would have to be something classical because it would have, everything else becomes an earworm after a while, no matter how brilliant it is or how gorgeous it is. But if it's got lyrics in it, um, it's going to, you know, it's going to get in your head and it's going to drive you crazy after a while. So I would think it would be a classical work. It would be something which you could listen to many times and it would, it, every time you listen to it, it's deeper. So perhaps Beethoven's Homoclafir, maybe that's what I would take. I think that would be a good one. Suits the mood as well. Um, and book, well, we also, again, well, take Shakespeare's complete works. I mean, you're not going to go wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the first sentence of the novel that you will write about this pandemic? Oh, goodness me. There you go. <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a bestseller. <laughs> it what might begin role? with COVID-19. COVID-19, what a strange, what a strange word which is now a household word, a household name, something like that perhaps. It, it, was, it was not unexpected but took everybody by surprise. Yeah, that's good. What role do you think authors can play in this pandemic? Uh, well, I think we'll go back to the Boccaccio and the Decameron and let's tell, let's tell, tell stories that will be um, enticing and, and will enable people to reflect about what's happening, perhaps, you know, the usual, actually nothing different from what we usually do. I mean, I think that's, we must just tell the stories um, and tell the stories honestly um, and truly and, and then be imaginative as well. So perhaps enriching our, our inner lives, our imaginative lives. If we, that was also the case with my mom in the book, you know, that she's a very ordinary woman on the, on the exterior. Um, she had no great uh, public accomplishments and she hadn't been to university. She was essentially, as she described it, she was a, she was a wife, uh, a housekeeper um, and a cook and a mother uh, and yet she had this extraordinary rich inner life. Um, so maybe that's what, you know, what we would like, what we could encourage 
um, is to, for people to explore their, their inner, the, the richness of their inner lives at this stage. Um, I, think that's, I think that's the gift um, that we all have in us, and that's what we need to develop when we lock down. And now, sound effects, Rorschach test. Is that it? (laughs) 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 A eureka moment, perhaps? Uh, Rather a a funny uh, scientist discovering, they've discovered the cure to COVID. (laughs) Right, I'm thinking of silence. I've noticed that since the lockdown, um, dogs are not barking nearly as much as as they were before probably because there aren't other dogs passing in the street and people walking by. So ironically now, the sound of a dog barking makes me think of silence. Um, I'm thinking of airport lobbies um, where I've spent an awful lot of my life and I'm wondering when I'll get to be back in one. Um, These strange international spaces that are all exactly the same wherever you are in the world almost, not exactly, but more or less. these, these zones, um, as we move from completely different places in the world and different cultures, and now are considered danger zones, I suppose. Um, and I'm hoping that will change soon again. Um, on the other hand, um, we've probably reached our carbon emission uh, uh, targets uh, as a result of this, which is, a, which is a good thing. And I don't know if we'll ever go back to the kind of mad traveling that we used to do. Um, I certainly travel a hell of a lot. I'm glad I did do it. But, you know, one day when people say, oh, you know, that, that Mearsman character, can you believe it? He, he went to 80-something countries. Isn't that appalling? Um, all that carbon footprint that he ran up in his life. And I think it will be, be something to be, um, to be ashamed of, um, how much one has traveled in the future. <laughs> A hysterical laughter, sort of, but kind of um, the, the comic villain, the what we imagine them doing behind the scenes. So perhaps it's the alter ego of, of Donald Trump as he looks at his ratings. <laughs> Brent, um, your book is available as an ebook and it's available on all the platforms, Amazon and um, Take a Lot and Loot. Yes, yes. My, the, the publisher tells me it's on more than 40. Um, ebook platform so it's it's well represented out there one should be able to find it on almost anything really and i do hope that the people will get hold of the print copy at some stage um and maybe we'll be able to do a launch um there's photographs in the uh in the print copy i'm not sure if they're reproduced in the ebook actually they probably are but I'm, i'm actually not sure of that brent that was excellent thank you very much and i do hope that the book does well because it deserves a wide audience oh thanks thanks Jonathan thank you for listening to I'm a Booker Booker the Quarantine Chronicles live from the lockdown you can subscribe to I'm a Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live authors who would like to be featured email jonathan.anser at gmail.com I'm a booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger.